as we come to God's word, let's pray and ask for his help to understand and take it to heart. Father, we thank you that these words, even though they are so ancient, speak to us today because this is still your living word to us. And we pray that you will, by your spirit, speak as we look at your word together, uh, that we will hear your voice and that you will tell us what it is you want to tell us from your word. Humble us, we pray, and we ask that you will give us open and receptive hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. It might be helpful to turn back to 1 Samuel 16. It's on page 287 um, as we look at these verses uh, together of the anointing of King David, or the one who was to become King David. As I start, I want to ask you, what does the world look for in its leaders? As we look around at world leaders, we may wonder if there is any common denominator. Ecuador has just elected the youngest leader in its history. Daniel Noboa is only 35 years old. While in the United States, it looks like next year they might be voting for the oldest president in their history. So age doesn't seem to have much to do with it. But there does seem to be a certain charisma that people are looking for in their leaders. Perhaps an ability to convince them that they know what they're talking about. We certainly live in an age where conveying the right image is important. And how we put ourselves across what we reveal about ourselves in terms of emphasizing our successes and minimizing or redefining our failures helps us to get on in life, even if our aspiration isn't to be a world leader. But what about in the church? What do we look for in our leaders? And is it any different from what the world looks for? Well, I think that the passage that we're looking at this evening does at least to some extent touch on that. Although as I say that, I'm conscious that we need to tread warily because we're talking here in 1 Samuel about a very significant moment in salvation history. And the role that King David is going to play is a very big one indeed. Arguably much bigger than any one individual today is likely to play. But as we look at 1 Samuel 16 together, there are three points that I want us to notice um, I probably should have had them on uh, some sort of PowerPoint because they're not very snappy, so I apologize for that. Um, but the first thing is that God overcomes human obstacles to ensure his chosen king is anointed. God overcomes human obstacles to ensure that his chosen king is anointed. At the start of First Samuel 16, we see that God's prophet Samuel is in no mood to move on. God has rejected Saul as king, and in chapter 15, Samuel has had to tell that to Saul, but it has given him no pleasure. And in chapter 16, we see him still mourning for Saul. Now, there could be any number of reasons as to why Samuel is really sad about what has happened, but notice that God says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? There may be a personal dimension to Samuel's grief, showing he really cares about Saul. 
but it seems that he's perhaps mourning more for what might have been in terms of Saul as the, the potentially great king. And maybe even he's wondering how God could have let Saul become king when it was all going to turn out so badly. And it's as if Samuel doesn't have the heart to look for a new king because maybe kings aren't the way ahead after all. But while the sadness of Saul may be, or of Samuel may be understandable in the circumstances, God's not going to let him sit around moping forever because he has a new commission for Samuel. There is a new king whom he wants him to anoint and he's to go to Bethlehem to do it. He tells Samuel that the man he has chosen is one of the sons of a man called Jesse, but he doesn't give him any more specifics, presumably because he's one or two more things yet to teach Samuel through this. The only thing is that even if Samuel can bring himself to move on, Saul is still around. He is still the king. He may have been rejected by God, but he's still very much alive and very much on the throne. So if he gets wind of Samuel going off to anoint another king, he may not take too kindly to that. And Samuel fears for his life. He actually says to God in verse 2, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. But God's not going to be put off that easily. And so he comes up with a plan. Samuel is to take a heifer with him to sacrifice in Bethlehem. And he's to invite Jesse and presumably his sons to the sacrifice. Clearly, this is enough of a cover story to satisfy Samuel. And so he obeys the word of the Lord and goes off to Bethlehem. Now, you'll see from verse 4 that when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, he's greeted by the elders of the town with some trepidation. Again, we're not told exactly why. Maybe they know that Samuel is at odds with Saul, and they're not sure what his next move is going to be. But Samuel manages to set their minds at rest that he hasn't come to cause any trouble for them, as he explains to them, he's come to offer a sacrifice to which they're all invited. And so the scene is set for Samuel to meet the one whom God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. There were a few things that could have thrown God's plan off course. But they're not going to be a problem to God because this is his plan. He wants to see David anointed. And so he's going to make sure that it happens. It's important that we notice throughout this narrative that God is in complete control of everything. Did you see how even in the opening verses, God says several times what he's doing. He says to Samuel in verse one, I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In verse three, he says, I will show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. This is such a significant moment in Israel's history that God is going to make sure that nothing goes awry. He is in control from start to finish. Previously, when Saul was anointed king, even though God was involved and did prompt Samuel to anoint him, ultimately it seems that what God was doing was giving the people what they wanted. They wanted a king so that they could be like the surrounding nations. And the king God gave them in Saul was just like that. He was impressive, head and shoulders above the rest, quite literally. He looked like how they thought a king should look. Now, though, God is going to appoint the king that he wants, the king the people need. 
It's not that different, is it, from the circumstances surrounding the coming of another king, one greater even than David, but one in the line of David. Do you remember how we read in Matthew's gospel that when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he was sure that the baby wasn't his, that he resolved to divorce her quietly? But the problem with that would be that Jesus would end up being treated as illegitimate, with no family line taking him back to David. If he was born as Joseph's son, he would be in that line. And that was the line that God promised the Messiah would come from. And so God had to send an angel to Joseph to assure him that Mary had not been unfaithful to him, that the baby she was carrying really was the son of God. And so Joseph took Mary to be his wife. Things could have been derailed, but God wasn't going to let that happen. As a general principle, it's good for us never to forget that God is in sovereign control. And he will always make sure that his ultimate purposes are fulfilled. When it comes to specifics, it's perhaps a little trickier in terms of rightly applying these verses to us. David was the overall leader of God's people. And today, none of us, either as an individual in the Samuel mode, nor as a nation of Christians, because such a thing doesn't exist in our world today, a, a completely Christian nation, none of us has the responsibility for choosing an overall leader of God's people in the way that David was going to be. And let's remember as well that Jesus, who was greater even than David, who came to be the savior of the world, was in many respects, not elected or appointed or anointed by any human beings. In some ways, it's quite reassuring to think that we don't have the level of responsibility that Samuel had. But I suppose there is at least a kind of lesser sense in which leaders within the church today do still have a role in leading God's people. When leaders move on, and you've obviously had experience of that, we need to look to God to provide for who is to come, trusting that he can provide the leaders that we need. Thankfully, you're not looking to anoint uh, the next King David in Ravenhill, but you are looking for God to provide someone to take forward the work of his kingdom in this place, and God can do that. He can provide for you because he is able to provide the leadership for his people that they need. But perhaps the more challenging aspect of this passage is not so much the challenge to trust God to provide. I hope that we, we do trust him for that. But to understand what it is that God looks for in the one who is to rule and lead his people. Because the second thing we notice from this passage is that God chooses his king by a different standard. We see that particularly in verses 6 and 7. There in verse 6 you'll see as Jesus presents his firstborn son Eliab to Samuel, Samuel's natural reaction is to think, wow, he looks like a king. Surely he must be the one that God has chosen. In many ways, Samuel's reaction could be considered to be a bit disappointing because it looks like he's working on the same basis as when Saul was chosen to be king. You might even accuse Samuel of being a little bit heightist. Um, he seemed to value people who were tall. Um, and, and we want to say to Samuel, hang on a minute, have you learned nothing? Saul looked the part, 
but he didn't turn out to be a good king. Why would you go for Saul Mark II? Someone who simply looks big and impressive. But Samuel is simply showing that despite being God's prophet, he's still human. And he lacks God's wisdom and insight. He's still a bit impressed by things that don't really count. They count in the eyes of the world, but they don't really matter to God. And Samuel still seems to be thinking, I'd like a king who could hold his own with the best of the kings of the surrounding nations. I'd like people to look at Israel and think, your king's very impressive, because he ticks the boxes that they think a king should tick. But God tells Samuel that his way of working is not like Samuel's. And verse 7 probably contains the best known words in this passage, if not perhaps in the whole of this book, where God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, before we get too carried away with blaming Samuel for being so shallow, we have to realize that I'm not sure that God is particularly blaming him here because all Samuel has to go on is what is presented to him. God isn't saying, Samuel, you should look at Eliab's heart before you decide whether he might make the best king or not. Because guess what? Samuel can't see into Eliab's heart. Only God can. Only God can know what someone's heart is really like. And obviously here, when he's speaking about the heart, he's speaking at, of the, the center of the emotions, the essence of who someone is. Other people can have an idea of what we're like. Those that we live with can probably have quite a good idea of the things that upset us, the things that motivate us, the things that we treasure most. But even they really know every last thing about us, what we're really like in the privacy of our own thoughts. Sometimes we may not even fully understand ourselves. Why is it that we responded in that way to something that someone said? Why did we do that kind thing for someone? Was it just to feel good about ourselves? Was it because of our love for God? Was it because of how we've been brought up? Often we don't take time to analyze our actions, and, and even when we do, we can sometimes fool ourselves into thinking we're a lot better than we actually are. Seeing to the heart of anyone is something that only God can do. But there is a sense in verse 7 that God is not just looking for a king with the right kind of heart, but looking for the king whom God's heart desires. There's actually a little bit of ambiguity in the way that this verse is put in the original Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I've just read this, but I trust what I've read. <clears throat> if you were trans to translate it literally, it would be, man sees according to the eyes. God sees according to the heart. I think pretty much every English translation goes for the idea that when it says God sees according to the heart, it means that he sees what the heart of a person is like. But the Hebrew does seem to leave open the possibility that when it says that God sees according to the heart, it could at least in part be according to his own heart, according to God's heart. And I don't think we should 
be too quick to dismiss that as being at least part of the idea uh, behind what's been said here because of what we read in 1 Samuel 13. If you just want to flick back a moment, a couple of pages to 1 Samuel 13, um, you'll see something quite significant that, that Samuel says to Saul there. It's after uh, Saul has not waited for Samuel, remember, uh, to make sacrifices. He's gone on ahead and made sacrifices himself that he shouldn't have done. Um, and then in verse 13, um, Samuel says to Saul, you acted foolishly, Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And this is the significant part. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Samuel is clearly saying that the next king of Israel is going to be a man after God's own heart. So does that mean that David is going to be the man after God's heart because God knows what David's heart is like and it's the kind of heart he's looking for? It's time to draw that conclusion, isn't it? And yet maybe we need to be a little bit careful. Ultimately, David was going to be a king unlike Saul because for so much of his reign, he trusted in God and sought to obey him. But he wasn't perfect. And he did have one monumental lapse which had big ongoing consequences. So I think at least in some measure, we have to say that God's choice of David was more to do with God than even with David. God's heart was for David. His favor was on him. He was the one God had chosen and God would indeed incline David's heart to trust in him and to look to him rather than trusting in himself and in his own resources. But we need to be careful that we don't read a passage like this and think we mustn't be impressed by external things. Instead, we should look at someone's heart because as I've already said, we can't know for certain what someone's heart is like. And we cannot know what they may become. Seeing David at this stage as a shepherd boy, you don't know the potential that is there to become a great king of Israel. There can be some people who start out with great early promise and we think they might do amazing things for God, but in the end, their lives don't seem to amount to very much. While there can be others who we're not quite so sure about, who actually turn out to be really used by God. And all of this leads us to conclude that actually Samuel was in a better position than we sometimes find ourselves in. He couldn't know God's heart or the heart of God's chosen king himself, but God was going to tell him directly whom he should choose. And we know that that's not how God works today. We'd love it if that was the case. We got a very audible, clear voice from God uh, telling us <clears throat> certain things about certain people. He doesn't speak to us as definitively as that. But if we earnestly seek his guidance and his wisdom, he can direct us. And the important thing is that as we look for leaders in the church, we should be looking for those who at least appear to be people after God's own heart. 
It should be irrelevant whether they look impressive in the eyes of the world. And we need, obviously, to guard against the kind of criteria that this world uses to assess people. Is someone young and dynamic? Do they present well? Are they clear thinkers and strategists? Are they entertaining to listen to? Are they able to sell themselves well? Do they talk a good game? We should want leaders who are humble, conscious of their weakness and inadequacy, who want to point people to Jesus, and as far as we can tell, are seeking to honor him in the whole of their lives. And let's not forget one final principle that comes out of this passage, and it's this. God's chosen king is the one who is overlooked. God's chosen king is the one who is overlooked. As the different sons are paraded in front of Samuel, each time he's told by God that this is not the one, until almost in desperation he asks Jesse if he happens to have any other sons. And it's as if Jesse has almost forgotten about David. He certainly didn't think him important enough to be invited to the sacrifice. And you notice in verse 11, we're not even told his name. He's just referred to as the youngest. I mean, he could have said number eight, I suppose. <clears throat> he's off looking after the sheep. But he seems to be the only hope left for Samuel. So he urges that he be sent for straight away. And you notice that the first thing we're told about David when he appears on the scene in verse 12 is that he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And at this point, part of us wants to go, hang on a minute, why are we being told about how handsome he looked? Surely outward appearance doesn't count. Well, in fact, <clears throat> if someone is, looks the part in the eyes of the world, surely that actually militates against them being the person that God might have chosen. David's ticking at least one or two boxes, is he not? I think what we're meant to see here is that outward appearance doesn't automatically qualify you or disqualify you. You can be tall, dark, handsome, or short, fat, and ugly, and equally be used by God. If you find a godly Christian leader who happens to tick some of the boxes that this world seems to think are quite important, well, that's fine. But we mustn't think that God is using him or can use him more because he has that extra appeal. There sometimes can be that slight temptation, can't there, to think that part of the reason that some people seem to be more effective in ministry than others is because of certain qualities they possess, either in terms of their appearance or their presentational skills. But while those things may not have been a hindrance, they're actually not the primary reason why God may have used someone. The big thing about David and about any Christian leader whom God has chosen to use for his glory is that they are someone after God's heart. And in fact, they may be someone who could easily be overlooked. For all David's handsome appearance, his father had almost forgotten about him. He certainly didn't think of him as king material. Of course, in all of this, we must never forget that there was one who was overlooked by many as he lived on this earth, despite the fact that he was the son of God. We read in the Gospels how many in Jesus' own town 
couldn't believe that he could be that special because he'd grown up in their midst and they'd never have marked him out for greatness. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says that God's servant, his Messiah, would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nowhere in the Gospels are we told anything about what Jesus looked like, how tall or how short or how handsome or anything else, or about anybody responding to him because of his physical appearance. And yet he was the one who, above all others, was the one after God's own heart, the one who perfectly obeyed his heavenly father to the point of sacrificing his life. We'll not find very many world leaders who are men or women after God's own heart because he's not all that concerned about that. And often what this world looks for is not really what God values in terms of submission to him and lifelong humble obedience. Sadly, not every leader in the church is going to be someone after God's heart because we know that sometimes churches get the leaders that they want rather than the, the leaders that they need. And often those leaders are ones who look and sound successful in the way that the world views these things, but who are not truly dependent on God and are just a little bit more concerned about their kingdom than about his. But what are we meant to make of this passage? What is God teaching us from it? I think that we're meant to see in David, and then in David's greater son, who is Jesus, that God chooses those whom he wants to be his servants. And often those are people who don't necessarily look all that significant in the eyes of this world. And sometimes we will not spot that straight off because we're not able to look into people's hearts or futures in the way that God can. But we should never be surprised when God takes those who seem unlikely candidates, as it were, and chooses to use them to lead his people and build his kingdom. David didn't go looking for the kingship. I don't know if he was self-consciously setting out to be the man after God's heart. And in a sense, that's something of the mystery of how God works. He chooses and uses those who will bring glory to him and not try to steal it for themselves. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. And he does that from the greatest to the least within his church. The gospel doesn't say, come to Jesus and he will make you a success in the eyes of the world. Doesn't say, if you're someone that this world thinks is great, then God would love to have you on his team. None of us can come to faith in Christ, and none of us can be truly used by Christ unless we realize that we are as nothing, that we deserve to be overlooked, and that we can only be fruitful for Christ by his empowering. It is only when Christ is at work in us that we can be then the people after God's own heart. The good news of the gospel is that it's all about how great God is, not about how great I am. 
or how great I may become. Because the great God who made this universe was willing to become as nothing, to come into this world as a servant, to be overlooked and ultimately rejected and killed. But he did it so that anyone could become the man or woman after God's own heart. Because through trusting in Christ's death for us, our hearts can be changed so that we're not just living for ourselves and our glory, but for Christ and his glory. And so as we look for leaders within our church, we want people who have a heart for God, who are humble before him. But surely what we want in our leaders should be present in each one of us, that we are those who are not seeking to become something because we want the glory to, to go to us. But we want the glory to go to God because he is the one who has done everything for us. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts as you look into them. You know all the different mixed motivations and all the influences that there are upon us, the temptations that we have to see things as this world sees them. But thank you, Lord, that you have the power to change our hearts and you have the power to use us in the ways that you want to. And it may not look very significant in the eyes of this world, but thank you that you choose to take those who don't look that impressive. And as you use us in these small ways to point others to Christ, to bring people to faith, to help encourage them in their faith. So you are showing your greatness because you don't operate the way this world does. Help us to understand that more and more. Help us to trust you more and more to provide the leaders that we need to help us to be the people that you want us to be all of us, to be people after your own heart. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.